Song of Solomon, chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1, we'll read the first six verses, but we're going to go through the entire book today, and I'm still going to have you out before dinner time. I didn't say lunch time, I said dinner time, all right? So Song of Solomon, and this is, a, this is an appropriate book for this time of year, it's right here, we're just after Valentine's Day, and I got out of buying chocolate because my wife was in a Passover for Valentine's Day. And so I, I lucked out this year, but you know, this is a time of year that we begin to think about romance and romantic relationships and, and, and that sort of thing. And so the Song of Solomon is appropriate for this time of year because King Solomon here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes a romance that he himself has experienced and turns it into a book of the Bible, which becomes a metaphor or a symbol for the loving relationship that Christ has toward us. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me. We will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. I am black but comely. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Keter, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. The Song of Solomon is a book that's often overlooked in the Bible. Uh, think about how many times you've heard sermons preached on the Song of Solomon. Uh, how, how many times you heard that? I can count them on one hand. Um, three. Uh, two of them were by Brother Juan Gallegos. Uh, every time I see him preach, he preaches out of the Song of Solomon. And he is a romantically inclined individual. Every time he talks about his relationship with his wife and how they like to go walking and everything. The other person I've heard... Uh, teach out of the Song of Solomon is Beth Moore. She did a study out of uh, Song of Solomon at one point. And so that's the only teaching out of Song of Solomon I've, I've heard. And there's a reason for that. This can be a difficult book to understand. Charles Spurgeon once wrote about the Song of Solomon. He said that this book stands like the tree of life in the midst of the garden and no one will ever be able to pluck its fruit and eat of it until he has been brought by Christ past the sword of the cherubim and led to rejoice in the love that has delivered him from death. He also said that Solomon, the Song of Solomon is a book of deep mystery not to be understood except by the initiated. Do you all know what he was saying? He was saying, guys, I have trouble understanding this. That's what Spurgeon was saying about the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is often overlooked. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the middle of the Old Testament. And it, let's be honest, its depiction of passionate romantic love can scare most Bible teachers away. But the book is a great depiction of the love between Christ and his people. The romance between King Solomon and the Shulamite woman is a picture of the love Christ has for his people. The love Christ has for his people is quite passionate, all right? We need to quit thinking about Jesus as this illustrated figure that's on these stained glass windows and these candles you see at Walmart and, and these picture books and what have you with the, with the yellow circle behind his head everywhere he goes. And we need to start thinking about Jesus for who he really was. 
And we need to remember that Jesus was a passionate man, passionate son of God, passionate God in flesh, okay? I'm, but he was passionate. He was driven by his passion, his passionate love for his people. There are some really heavy emotions going on here. The love of Christ for his people is quite passionate. Passionate enough for him to go to the cross for us. Now, if I wrote a romance novel, or maybe even a romance movie, about a man who loved a woman so deeply that he willingly put himself in a place where he had to die an excruciating death for her benefit, for her betterment, dare I say for her salvation, that would be like Oscar Nobel Peace Prize Literary prize, Pulitzer Prize, I don't know what kind of prizes they have out there. It would be prize-winning stuff. That's a good story. And Jesus did it for us in real life. In John Milton's Paradise Lost, he writes his epic poem about the fall of man, the eating of the forbidden fruit of the garden, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Milton theologically got it wrong. But the story he writes is good. In Milton's Paradise Lost, his, his premise is that Eve ate the apple and Adam realized that Eve was going to come under the condemnation of God. And so Adam decided to eat the apple so that he could go through the condemnation with her. That's passionate love, is it not? John Milton gave the credit for that to Adam. The one who underwent the condemnation of God on our behalf was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Song of Solomon, this is a book about passionate love, passionate romantic love. But you have to remember that what Solomon is illustrating here is the passionate love that the Lord has for his people. And so with that, I want us to look at three things. First of all, we're going to look at the romance. Because that's where these relationships start, right? There's a romantic period. Y'all remember when you were first dating your spouse and you just couldn't get enough? You wanted to be together all the time? You were Twitter-pated? You remember being Twitter-pated? Remember falling asleep on the phone? You hang up. No, you hang up. You hang up first. No, you hang up first. Let's, let's hang up together. Are you still there? Y'all remember those days? Sometimes you don't. But I remember those days. I remember Jessica falling asleep on the phone. I worked overnights on the radio station. She'd call in on the request line and talk to me till she fell asleep. And then I'd hang the request line up. Then she'd call me and ask me why I hung up on her. Um, those were some good days, weren't they? Really passionate romance. We're going to talk about the romance. We're going to talk about the wedding. And we are going to talk about the marriage. First, let's talk about the romance. Let's, let's look at this Shulamite woman here. Verse 5 and 6 here in Song of Solomon chapter 1. She says, I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Keter, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. She says, first thing she says about herself in verse 5 is that she is black. Now we have to understand, we've got to take modern American perception of this and put that aside. And what did this mean for that day? For that day, it meant that she had dark skin. 
And the reason she had dark skin was she was doing hard labor outside. She was always under the blistering heat of the sun. And so this is not a lady who has experienced any kind of luxury. She had no esteem, no degree, nothing going for her. Uh, she She was the lowest of all the siblings, the lowest of all the servants, put out in the field to work and to work hard. That is why she says that she is black. Her mother's children were very angry with her. She had to keep vineyards that were not hers. She had no vineyard. She had no wealth. She had nothing to bring to the table. She's been rejected. Her mother's children, her siblings, were angry with her. Nobody likes her. She is the outcast. She has nothing. This is Cinderella in a, in, in a sense. I mean, this, this, that's who I think about um, because, you know, the stepsisters, they hated Cinderella. The stepmonster, she hated Cinderella. You know, everybody hated Cinderella. She has no hope. She has nothing to offer a potential husband. There is no dowry. There is no prestige. She has nothing to offer a king. No dowry. Again, no prestige, no influence. Do you know why royals got married back in those days? How did King Solomon wind up with like a thousand wives? I think here in the book it talks about um, 300 wives and 400 virgins or 400, you know, and there's a number of concubines in there somewhere. I don't know. But but, but he winds up with like hundreds. He winds up with hundreds, with hundreds of wives. I mean, was he really that big of a ladies' man? Was King Solomon the time he was like, hey, baby. And the women swoon? No. These wives were offered to him by other kings in exchange for him not invading their countries. Pretty much, or to get a trade deal with him so they could make some money off of him. Right? That's why royals got married. She had nothing to bring to the table of that. Her dad's not a royal. She can't secure peace with him. She can't secure trade with him. She has nothing to offer. And when we look at the Song of Solomon, we have to remember that in this story, we are the Shulamite woman. We have nothing to offer. We don't have our own vineyard. We don't have wealth. We don't have a dowry. We don't have anything to bring to the kingdom of God. God does not save us. He does not recruit us. He does not call us to his service because we're really awesome. Colleges, when they're looking for football players, they look for the football player that had the most success at the highest levels of high school football. They are looking for someone who has speed, someone who has skill, someone who has something to bring to the table. We don't have that. God didn't save you because he looked down and said, herein is a brilliant individual. Therefore, I must save him for my kingdom because I can really use his services. God does not do that. God did not look at Leland and say, herein is a genius who always gets things right and never messes things up because we know that's not true. All right? But he called me anyway. He saved me anyway. I had nothing to bring to the table. That's us. That's the Shulamite woman. Now, she says that she's comely. That means that she is nice looking. That means that she's not total dirt. But she still, she has nothing to bring to the table, okay? So there's the Shulamite woman. And then we have King Solomon. We look in uh, King Solomon. And we look in chapter 2, verse 3. How are we, how are we describing King Solomon? Verse 3 in Song of Solomon chapter 2 says, As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. 
I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. The Shulamite woman compares King Solomon to the apple tree in the forest. Now, I grew up in a place of pine trees, deep east Texas, pine trees. That's, that's what we got, pine trees. Miss Vicky grew up in Longview, all right? Pine trees, right? Those pine trees can give you shade, but they kill your grass, and there's nothing to eat. There is a way to eat pine cones, but I don't recommend it. It's not a delicacy. Um, but, you know, if you can imagine going through the piney woods and all of a sudden there's an apple tree there with a whole bunch of apples. What's your favorite tree in the forest right now? The apple tree. My grandfather planted an apple tree in our backyard when I was a kid. I was so excited. There were pine trees everywhere. Now I'm going to have an apple tree. I'm going to get to eat apples right off the tree. All right, and so that's what she sees. It's the apple tree. You have lots of trees in the forest. There are a lot of trees in the woods, but it's the apple tree that provides nutrition, that provides nourishment, that provides the shade. Lots of different trees in the wood, but at this particular moment, the apple tree is the only one that matters. Lots of men in the world, but for the Shulamite woman, Solomon is the only one that matters. Here, we have kind of a reference to Christ. When you think about it, lots of trees in the woods, there's lots of religions in the world, is, is there not? There's all kinds of religions. There are a lot of philosophies in the world, a lot of ideas, a lot of things being taught, a lot of things being sold. But there's only one that will truly give you life everlasting, life more abundantly, and only one that will truly nourish your soul. And that is faith in Christ. Amen. The Shulamite woman loves the apple tree far and above all the other trees in the forest. As the Shulamite woman has chosen Solomon. And just as the Shulamite woman has chosen Solomon and chosen the apple tree far above all the other trees in the forest. The Christian has looked to Christ. Has believed in Christ. He is the only source of our hope. We have no hope in and of ourselves. Christ is the source of our hope. Our confident expectation, our looking forward to the day of salvation. I feel sorry for anybody who's looking forward to the day of retirement when Social Security will come through because Social Security is not going to come through. Some of y'all are already on Social Security. All right? It doesn't deliver what it promised it was going to deliver, even now. I, I've, I haven't known anybody on Social Security say, oh, I got it made. I'm on Social Security. I hear, I might be able to get by. I'm on Social Security. But nobody says, I've got it made because I'm on Social Security. You know, back when I was a kid, everybody looked forward to the golden age of 65 because at 65, the clouds were supposed to part and, you know, everything was supposed to turn to gold and you could live out the retirement days. And that hasn't happened for a lot of people. There's no hope in that because whatever you place your hope in for retirement, Social Security, the 401K, the stock market, the savings, the nest egg, whatever you've got can all disappear pretty quickly. And it does. We're not looking forward to the golden age of retirement. I'm not, as much as I joke about it, I'm not really looking forward to the day that I sit on my front porch and yell at the neighborhood kids to get off my lawn. Because I don't think I'll ever see those days. I do think I could possibly live to be 70 or 80, but I don't think 70 or 80 looks like front porch yelling at neighborhood kids. I think it's going to look like something completely different. My hope is not in the fact that someday maybe I'll get to sit down and do nothing. My hope is that one day I'll be able to enter into God's kingdom and be with him for eternity. 
Why do I have that hope? Because the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed me from my sins when he went to the cross and he rose again to give me that eternal life. Christ is the sole source of our hope. He is our salvation. And he is the one that we look forward to being reunited with in his kingdom. Can you imagine what Adam must have experienced walking along with God in the garden in the cool of the day? We're going to get to experience that someday. Are you not looking forward to that? That all comes through Christ. We're looking forward to him. We are just like the Shulamite woman. She sees King Solomon and she sees the apple tree in the forest. She sees the one who is special, the one that she wants to be with. That's who we see when we see Christ. That's what it's all about. You go to heaven and Jesus isn't there, but everything else that we sung about in all these hymns all these years is, are we satisfied? Because we didn't get to see Jesus. Right? He is our hope, our salvation. We look forward to being united with him in his kingdom. In chapter 2, verse 4, the Shulamite woman says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. This is a big deal. This is a big verse. Again, we're talking Cinderella-type stuff here. There's a banquet. There's a ball. There's a high-class social gathering. And you've got this Shulamite woman. And she has been working in other people's vineyards her entire life. She's been sentenced to hard labor out in the fields her entire life. She has been beaten down by the sun. She's comely, but the hard labor has taken its toll on her appearance. And she's got no wealth. She is a peasant in the truest sense of the, of the word. But she has met King Solomon. And there's a banquet. And there's a ball. And King Solomon has not only invited her to the ball... But she says his banner over me was love. That means that she is not just a guest at the ball, but he's got her on his arm. And he's going around talking to all the other nobles and all of the other leaders and, and all of the other high-class, uh, highfalutin royalty. I don't know what all they had in, in that day and age, but I mean, we're talking about the creme de la creme day. Israelite society is there, and King Solomon has this Shulamite woman on his arm. He's introducing her to everybody. His banner is over her. His banner of love is over her. He has no problem saying, this is who she is. This is my love, you know. And he is, he is walking with her and introducing her and showing her the life and showing her to his people, and he is proud of her. And ladies... I mean, what does that mean to you that he's going to do that? I mean, wouldn't this be a different story if, if Solomon says, hey, meet me after the banquet, but you can't go in, you know. Y'all ever seen, y'all ever seen The Greatest Showman? It's, it's, it's a Hugh Jackman movie about P.T. Barnum. But there's one scene in the movie where he's trying to market his product and his, his, himself to the higher end of society. And so all of the people from his circus, the bearded lady, the, the, the dwarf, you know, the, the tattooed man, the, you know, the, the quote-unquote freaks that he used to attract people to his circus, he's not wanting them to mingle with the high society, so he tells them to go out the back door. And there's like they, they, they just feel rejected, and they're, they're heartbroken, and so they wind up storming through anyway, and this is who we are, and there's a big song, This Is Me, and big musical number. But I mean, you know, to be told, yeah, I'm with you, but I can't let other people know I'm with you. That's, 
That's why he's ashamed of me, right? That's heartbreaking. That's a form of rejection. But yet here's King Solomon taking a Shulamite woman, and he is showing her around. Likewise, Christ has done the same for us. Second Corinthians, um, uh, Second Chronicles two fourteen says, "If my people, who are called by my name, he is calling us by his name. We are called by his name. He is identified with us, Israel." The name Israel means prince with God. Uh, in, in the New Testament times, we are Christians, Christ ones. We are called by his name. We are the people who are called by his name. He loved us openly. He went to the cross for us. He, we confess him before men. He confesses us before the Father. He intercedes for us. He acts on our behalf. Here we were, wretched sinners, yet he declared his love for us. It went to the cross for us. Make no mistake, in this story of romance, in the Song of Solomon, we are the Shulamite woman. Interesting thing about this, King Solomon's writing this. King Solomon's writing this about one of his romances. King Solomon is putting himself in the place of the Shulamite woman as he writes this. We are the Shulamite woman. The Lord is the king, the beloved in this. And so the, the, the romance progresses, and we find ourselves at the wedding. There is an espousal in, in chapter 3, verse 11. The scripture says, Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold... King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals and in the day of the gladness of his heart. The day of his espousals. His mother is crowning him in the day of his espousals and the day of the gladness of his heart. King Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, women by the hundreds, and yet the one that made him happy is this Shulamite woman and he is being crowned with the espousal to her and he is glad in his heart because of her. This is who he has chosen. This is who he is marrying. This is who he is dedicating his life to. This is the wedding. Now notice, now let's back up a few verses. We're going to see this from the Shulamite woman's perspective. In verse 6 in chapter 3, it says, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Three score valiant men are about it, and the valiant of Israel, they all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, covering it of purple, in the, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. So they've been married, they've been espoused to each other. And she sees the royal bedchamber. And surrounding the bedchamber, surrounding the bed, are threescore valiant men. These are 60 men that she says, they all hold swords, being expert in war. These are the most elite fighters in King Solomon's army. And what are they doing? They are protecting the place where she will be sleeping for the rest of her life. 
because you know she mentioned the fear of the night. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in the night. There are a lot of things that go bad in the night. There are a lot of threats to safety. But when it comes to the nation of Israel, to the kingdom of Israel at this time, when she is describing this place, where is the safest place in the entire kingdom? Is right there in that bedroom being guarded by 60 of Solomon's best fighters. There is no safer place in the world. When you are God's beloved, when you are God's redeemed, you are one of his people, there is no safer place for you to be than under his protection. Because there is nothing that can get to you without going through him. There is no safer place to be. As we look at what all can happen to us in life, and there are a lot of things to worry about. There are a lot of fears. There are a lot of instabilities. We must remember that God is still in control of our lives and our destinies. You know, when you repent of your sins, you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Bible teaches that he has saved you he has given you a new nature, that his spirit has sealed itself to your spirit, and that you are joined with Christ forever. If you believe on Christ, you have everlasting life, and you shall not come into condemnation. You're passed from death unto life. Your union, your union with Christ is eternal. We talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb as some cosmic event that will happen in the clouds, and I've heard people say, well, I'm going to be married to Jesus someday. Really, if you're a believer in Christ, you already are because that union has already been set. John chapter 5, verse 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Your union with the Lord is permanent. You are sealed together. So we've had the romance, we've had the wedding, now we have the marriage. And the marriage, what can we say about the marriage? You guys, y'all's marriage is perfect, mine's not, mine's good, it's really good, but I won't say it's perfect, right? Don't we have issues? Um, sometimes we have the disagreements, sometimes we have the heartbreaks, the disappointments, sometimes we lose sometimes my, one of my big things is I'm not paying attention when I'm not paying attention then I over I overlook some things that Jessica needed me to not overlook and so you know that that happens marriage isn't perfect there are failures you say wait a minute we're talking about the union between us and Christ y'all ever fail Christ right we go to Song of Solomon chapter 5 and we'll look in verses 2 through 8 and Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, she says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door, 
and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the wall took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am sick of love. That means she's lovesick. Her beloved has come to the door. He wants to come in, but she refuses. She says, how? How can this happen? I can't do this right now. I've put my coat off. I've ironed it, pressed it, dusted it off, cleaned it. Don't want to mess it up. I've washed my feet. I don't want to mess them up. I've done my nails. Paint's not dry. My hair's just perfect. Whatever. See, you're thinking, what's she doing? You know? She got distracted by the little things, didn't she? Here she is living the ultimate love story that will be recorded in the Bible. But right now she's preoccupied with all the little things, the temporary things, the the temporal things, the earthly things. How often does the Lord knock on our door, but we don't answer because we're too preoccupied with other things? That was the problem of the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. He stands at the door and he knocks. Do we open? Or are we too busy? We've got too many obligations. We've got to get to this. This is not a convenient time for right now. Plans cannot be interrupted right now. I have something else going on right now. This would really put a kink in my life's plan right now. I can't afford to do this right now. I don't have this paid up yet right now. How often do we... Hold on, not yet, Lord. Knock some other time. And what happens with the Shulamite woman? When she's ready for him to come in, he's not there anymore. See, our answer to God, not now, Lord, come back at a better season. We may not get that better season. I'm going to tell you all this. You will always be able to find a reason to not answer that door when God knocks. That reason will always be there. And when you don't open up to the Lord and you don't follow the call that he has put on your life, if you don't open up that door for fellowship with the Lord, just like the Shulamite woman found herself estranged from Solomon when he withdrew from her door, we too can find ourselves estranged from Christ when he quits knocking. All too often we are caught up in the things of this world and we totally ignore Christ and the things of the Lord. How often do you go through an entire day and you didn't pray today? It's been a busy day. How often does that happen? And we get away from our Bible study and our devotional routine. We get away from our prayer life. We get away from following God's call in our life. And then we find ourselves in a point where everything's quiet. And God's quiet. And God's silent. And God's distant. And we wonder why he's silent. And we wonder why he's distant. We didn't answer the door when he knocked. But 
God forgives. God loves. God redeems. And therefore, there's the recommitment. We go to chapter 6 and look in verses 1 through 3. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither is thy beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with thee? My beloved has gone down into his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens, to gather lilies. I am my beloved, I am my beloved's, beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feedeth among the lilies. The Shulamite woman knows where Solomon is. She knows where to find him. She goes there to find him. Likewise, when we wander from Christ, we should always repent, return to him, and recommit our lives to him, and he receives us every single time. The Bible says if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible says that if we do sin, then he is the propitiation for our sins. He receives us every time. One of the exciting things about a marriage is setting up a home together. When you get that first place and you move in together and you have that place, we go to Song of Solomon chapter 8 and we look in verses 11 through 14. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hammon. He let out the vineyard unto keepers. Every one for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. Verse 12. My vineyard, which is mine, is before me. Thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand, and those that keep the fruit thereof two hundred. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to thy voice, cause me to hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be thou like to a roe or to a young heart upon the mountains of spices. Do you remember the woman from chapter 1? She didn't have a vineyard. She'd kept these vineyards. She'd done this hard work out in the field, but she had not kept her own vineyard. She had no vineyard. She had nothing. We get to chapter 8. What does she have? She has a vineyard. She has a home, a place to be. She has Solomon, who loves her and cares for her. Likewise, we have a heavenly home. We have a Lord and Savior who loves us, who cares for us, who will receive us into that home. John chapter 14, verses 2 through 4, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. These can be mansions. These can be rooms. These can be apartments. I don't care. In my Father's house are many mansions, dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also, and whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. We will have a place to be, and we will be forever with the Lord. The Song of Solomon. <laughs> After studying for this sermon, I understand why... Spurgeon said what he said about it. It is to only be understood by the initiated. I'm not even sure what that means. But when you read his writings about it being like the tree of life in the middle of the, of the garden that you have to get past the angel with the sword to get to it, I'm thinking he might have had a little bit of trouble deciphering this. But if you look at it in the context of our relationship with Christ, his love toward us, it shows us that trajectory it shows us the Lord extending his love toward us, the Lord bringing us in, 
the Lord joining us to himself, the Lord providing for us, the Lord redeeming us, the Lord giving us an eternal habitation with him. Song of Solomon is a beautiful book. The question is, how do we respond to the Lord? Do we receive him? Do we accept him? Do we turn to him? Or do we reject him altogether?